Hey, Jay, what you researching? Uh, Pentope cosmology. What the who? Gateway's tribe. I mean, I think. I mean, well, I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating based on the X-Men's rough location in Australia, but that's the one that makes the most sense. But dude, that town wasn't even a real place. Well, yeah, I know. But X-Men volume two, number 44 puts it about 200 miles southeast of Lake Disappointment, which means it's either in or near the Gibson Desert bioregion. And as far as I've been able to figure out, the Pintopi are the only indigenous group based anywhere near there. He is a teleporter. He might have come from somewhere else. Oh, man. I said so much research already. Well, Gateway does get around, though. I mean, wasn't he at the Xavier School for a while? Yeah, for some of Generation X, I think. He's also got some previous history with Monet's little sisters. The twins who went around merged into one person for a while? Yeah, those two. Oh, and on Earth 1191. What's he up to on Earth 1191? Eh, you know, the usual. Teleporting around, being Bishop's grandfather. What?! J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 90 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Hey, Jay, I think we actually get to do an episode that's not Fall of the Mutants. I, I forgot what those were like. There are episodes that aren't Fall of the Mutants? I, I think this, in fact, is one of them. Oh my god, like I'm imagining us just sort of stumbling haggard out into the sunlight here. Except nah, because it's January in Oregon. Sunlight? What is the sunlight of which you speak? Right? We got wintry mix today. It's sort of like the sun. It's like lighter than the rest of the sky, kind w- of. Wintry mix? That's like some kind of a frosted checks mix thing, right? It does seem like it should be, shouldn't it? And has, I'm just imagining has, that Has anyone actually like made a trail mix or a candy called wintry mix? If not, get on it. Million dollar idea. Go. You should make it horrible. So, previously on X-Men, they all died. But they got better. Yeah. So, in Fall of the Mutants, um, obviously each of the three X-Books at this point did their own Fall of the Mutant story, and bad things happened, and in the X-Men, the bad thing that happened was all of them sacrificing their lives to save the world. But they were immediately and secretly resurrected by a woman named Roma. Now, Roma is, oh god, Roma is so complicated. Can we just say for our purposes that Roma's basically a god? Effectively, yeah. She's sort of a deity of the Omniverse. We're going to get into the Roma stuff a lot deeper later. You can also find out more about her in the X-Men-centric episode of our three-part Fall of the Mutants coverage. But for now, yeah, let's just say she is functionally very close to omnipotent. She likes the X-Men. She secretly resurrected them. And they basically decided they were going to continue to let the rest of the world think that they were dead so they could continue to operate clandestinely. Yeah, and they are, I think, invisible to all electronic detection. Video cameras don't pick them up. Uh, phone conversations don't pick them up. Their uh, AOL Instant Messenger chat logs immediately delete themselves, that sort of thing. Which is interesting, because one of the first things we see happening in this arc is them getting access to technology and scanning technology that does pick them up. It's true, but, you know, comic books, whatever. In general, they are invisible to almost all electronic surveillance. Okay, so the X-Men died and they got better. So where are they now? They are, or will shortly be, in Australia. I sort of think of this as the start of a major era of the X-Men. This is the Australia era, which I know you've brought up. Actually, I think you brought up on last year's winter special as your sort of definitive era of the X-Men. Yeah, which is weird because it doesn't actually last all that long. And it takes place during a time when they're not crossing over Inferno aside with very much of the rest of the X-Universe. It feels like it lasts longer than it actually does, I think. And one of the reasons is that the X-Men, the stories have just been nonstop crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. And there's just been this sense of nonstop exhausting momentum up till now. And suddenly they've actually got breathing room. 
Yeah. And I think that's why this works for me so well is because, first off, we have an excellent, fascinating lineup of X-Men. I mean, we have some mainstays like Wolverine and Storm and Colossus and Rogue. Then we have the newer Psylocke and Longshot and Dazzler and Havoc. Well, Havoc's new to the X-Men, not new to comics in general. And they actually have time to hang out, to play baseball, to explore the old ghost town that they're in, to have interpersonal drama stuff happen. And so for me, it's a good mix of, you know, drama and action, but also just some really good character work and some good character interaction. Yeah, we've talked a lot about our favorite points in X-Men often being the quiet moments that are more character-driven than major event-driven, and I think the Australia era of the X-Men has an unusually high concentration of those. I mean, not to say big, horrible stuff doesn't happen, because it totally does, just not every moment of every day. Oh yeah, Wolverine gets hella crucified, Jubilee joins the team, you know. <laughs> Other tragedies? No, no, Jubilee's great, Jubilee's great. Miles, we just. come on. All right, so, you know, I think you went through the lineup briefly as you were talking, but let's do an official rundown. Who died in Dallas? Who is now in Australia? All right. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people died in Dallas, but the ones that are in Australia are probably limited to the X-Men. Who died in Dallas and got eulogized by Neil Conan? How's that? I Very few people, yes. very uh, Just nine, in fact. Those nine are Storm, who is recently repowered as of the Fall of the Mutant storyline. She lost her powers for about three years, and now she has them again. And she is back running the X-Men now, or is she, are she and Wolverine co-captaining? Because it seems, it seems like Storm is the boss these days. Storm is the boss. Wolverine has a great deal of authority, but Storm is the boss. Speaking of, yes, we have Wolverine. And also Colossus, we have Rogue, Psylocke, Dazzler, Longshot, Havoc, and Cyclops' ex-wife, Madeline Pryor. I think they're still actually tech- no, actually they're not technically married because she's technically dead, but- is that how that works? Like, if you die and then it turns out you're not dead, that it was really a clone that got mutilated by the Marauders, then your marriage is annulled? I don't know. I feel like this is something that we should have probably gone over back in North Carolina. Where are those maritime lawyers when we need them? That only works if you get married at sea. Well, you know, uh, everything used to be water in the world. It's fine. Or maybe it's, it's the Waterworld future and, like, Kevin Costner could have married Cyclops and Madeline Pryor? Okay, so most of these comics very clearly take place in a desert. I'm just saying, if the Mariners showed up and the set sank, it would make for a better story. Well, anyway, the X-Men are in Australia, is the point. But um, before they go to Australia, we get sort of an odd flashback aside issue. That is X-Men 228, Deadly Games. And we're talking about this starting a new era, but this just feels sort of stuck in out of nowhere. It's such an odd follow-up to The Fall of the Mutants. I don't know if it was just Chris Claremont buying some time, and in fact, the issue is co-written by Tom DeFalco, so that is a possibility, but we don't really see what's happened to the X-Men because this issue takes place in the form of a letter that Dazzler sent to her old friend from her own series back in the day, O.Z. Chase. So what actually happens in here? Well, Dazzler and Wolverine team up with a bounty hunter who is definitely not a werewolf to take down a renegade Russian mutant. Wolverine feeds cigars to a dog and can smell nationality. And there is a heartwarming toast at gunpoint. You know, that's actually a surprisingly complete summary. The werewolf plot just kind of gets dropped midway through, and it's sort of bizarre. Which is a shame. I think werewolves liven up any story. It's true. But okay, Although I do like the idea of OZ Chase's like little subtitle on his business cards being definitely not a werewolf. <laughs> it's good to specify. He's not. So let's go into a little bit more depth than that, although I kind of like the idea of just leaving it at those couple sentences. Do we need to? This story feels so relevant to me. Like, it's such a one-off. It is such a one-off, but we do see some good character work with Dazzler, and we do see a good look at kind of how the X-Men are perceived after dying in Dallas. So, you know, I kind of like it. I think we have some good stuff here. This is framed, like I was saying, as basically an epistolary issue, which means that it's all framed by a letter that Dazzler has written to her old friend, OZ. That she's written to him specifically before the X-Men end up in Australia. This is around, I think, when they're in Scotland. Uh, when they're in Alcatraz, actually. Oh, okay, yeah. 
Yeah, it seems kind of weird because, you know, they're really trying to keep their whereabouts secret. They're trying to make sure that, you know, nobody's close enough to them or knows enough about them to be in danger. And Allison Blair is like, hey, bro, here are the details of our training regimen and also the team lineup and all of my feelings about it. It's like, really? Really, Dazzler? I mean, I know you're not subtle, but come on. No, it's like one of those uh, inside industry friend DA kind of things. And okay, so Ozzy Chase, we've seen him before if we have read Dazzler. He is a bounty hunter. He's got a dog named Cerberus who has a habit of stealing and eating his cigars, which cannot be good for that dog. Yeah, Wolverine like straight up feeds him cigars in this issue. Apparently this is a thing. Uh, it, it's fine. It's, Don't it's do totally that. Fine. Don't ever do that. And so it's kind of weird because Dazzler's writing this letter to Ozzy, but it turns out you find out very quickly that the letter she's writing is about a thing they already did together. So it's sort of a, hey, Ozzy, remember that time that we did the thing that I'm going to tell you about that you were there for? But actually, he's also going back and looking at the letter after they're dead. So this is, I mean, this is like Batman Odyssey levels, except that tragically, we do not ever get a scene of Ozzy Chase reading Dazzler's letter while eating a banana. Uh, That may be off camera. I think that's implied. That's the thing that happens in Batman Odyssey. It totally is. In this issue, Dazzler sees a newspaper headline talking about a werewolf killer, and she quickly makes the connection that it's actually talking about her friend O.C. Chase. He's being accused of this crime that she's pretty sure was not his style to commit. But she does remember that he has a large and super vicious dog, and she thinks, well, maybe combination of slightly dangerous dude, super dangerous dog. Maybe they did kind of maul someone to death, and the werewolf thing is just sort of a, a false alarm. Now, the X-Men are trying to lay low at this point, but Dazzler's really, she has her heart set on going. Wolverine's completely against it. Dazzler is the worst at laying low. She is the worst at laying low. I mean, she's a star, you know, she just wants an audience. I actually really like what Rogue says about this to Wolverine. Intellectually, she understands why she's with us. Emotionally, she hates it. Every so often, she's got to kick over the traces and go solo. And so the last time she did that, she ran into the juggernaut and things went very poorly. So Wolverine decides to come along and meet her and, you know, look after her, just make sure that, you know, no juggernauts occur. Meanwhile, in Pentonville, Florida, we get our first glimpse of the real killer. He's a guy in a pickup truck and he's zapping people with energy blasts. Why this would be read as maulings by a wolf, I have no idea, and it never comes up again. Oh, no, it's actually very traditional. In the old legends of lycanthropy, most werewolves upon the full moon will turn into a wolfen man figure, drive a pickup truck, and shoot lasers. They're not lasers. Okay, fine. Optic blasts. They're not that either. Force beams. Miles, do you know how many things in the Marvel Universe are not lasers? I will give you a hint. Most of them. Well, regardless, (laughs) werewolves are, in fact, truck drivers, and that is an indisputable canonical mythological fact. It's like the I've often not been on boats of energy. (laughs) I think it kind of is. But yeah, I really love this scene because, you know, there's this nice old couple in the middle of nowhere in rural Florida, and the wife is telling the husband to get ready because their daughter is going to come back from West Point. She just is taking a vacation from officer school. And then not a werewolf guy just murders one of them. But I like the fact that Claremont took the time to make this somewhat elaborate backstory for two characters who only exist to half die. I think it's cute that you're surprised by this still at this point. I just enjoy it every time. I mean, this is no like Harvey and Janet. This is no Ermagerd What's-His-Face from that one Archon annual. But still. You know, West Point daughter, it's tragic. I guess. I think it speaks to the tragedy within us all. Does the mom ever get a name? I don't think she does. No, she's just... Thomas and the Widow Thomas? The Widow Thomas, yes. Oh man, now I want her to be some kind of, like, Countess Dowager figure. I love this plan. See, this just takes me back to the Widow Dunsbury. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, anyway, long story short, Wolverine and Dazzler meet up in Florida. They bust Ozzy out of prison. It turns out he's being hunted by various assassin types. He is being hunted by specifically Russian assassins, which Wolverine figures out from the smell of the one they managed to capture, which is kind of weird. 
that is kind of weird. Maybe he's got like Russian flag smell lines. Well, no, coming I out could of see, for example, Wolverine recognizing like if there are a combination of shampoos or what, whatever, like specific scent tells from, you know, people from a certain branch of the Russian army or like a certain region. But he talks about this guy's, you know, base scent being Russian, which implies that he can literally just straight up smell nationality. Wolverine is very powerful. We know this to be true. This is why Weapon X recruited him. Originally, he can, he he was... can smell nationality from even a single cell. Exactly. Originally, he was just going to work in customs, but, you know, then it turned out he had knives in his hands, so they figured change departments. There are some really uncomfortable profiling implications. There really are. It's probably for the best he just ended up a murderous superhero instead of some kind of a profiler. Anyway, the Russian assassins aren't the only guys after our energy blasting pickup truck, not a werewolf. There is also a recognizable American coming after him, and that is the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe, Henry Peter Gyrick. Right. This is a guy that basically keeps track of various superpowered heroes and looks sort of suspiciously and condescendingly at them. It turns out Gyrick wants this Russian assassin, not a werewolf guy, as well. His name is Zaitsev, by the way. The assassin, not Gyrick. Uh, yes, Gyrick is named Gyrick. Because he was going to be the United States' in to the Russian mutant program, which I guess this is probably better than dealing with all the stuff from X-Factor Annual Number 1, so good call, Gyrick. And this guy, Zaitsev, is, also runs a drug cabal, which is why Chase was after him. He is not a good guy, and Dazzler and Wolverine are kind of appalled at the idea that they're supposed to bring him in alive and all of his drug crimes will be forgiven because he's going to give the U.S. government information that, admittedly, Dazzler and Wolverine don't know, but they could just as fucking easily have gotten from X-Factor. Mm -hmm. And probably actually did. <laughs> and one thing this issue does have is a lot of good windows into Dazzler as a character, because so far she's mainly been portrayed as being, well, for lack of a better word, whiny. And so it's nice to see her, you know, being a little bit more proactive, seeing her ideals, her personality come out. And seeing her step into a bit more confidence. If hating dirty deals like that makes me an amateur, I'm glad of it. I like caring about people and trusting them. Okay, that means I get hurt from time to time, but the reward's well worth the pain, and I'm a lot tougher than I look. I really like Dazzler in this era, and I gotta say, seeing quotes like this, seeing that kind of inherent idealism, that inherent trust in humanity, makes it perfectly clear why she and Longshot work so well as a couple, or did briefly anyway. I have a lot of trouble liking Dazzler. And really? I, I, yeah, I feel bad for that. I think part of the issue, I think I actually have the same issue with Dazzler that a lot of readers who started early on have with Jean Grey, in that for the first while when I read her, she was so inconsistently written and felt like such a construct that I had a lot of trouble humanizing her in useful ways. Like the series that made me care about Dazzler and, you know, echoes retroactively and makes me care more about Dazzler here was actually uh, Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men. That's true. That's actually a very good point. I mean, many characters, like I would say Cyclops is overall written the same by most writers. But you have characters like well, Dazzler. Overall, overall. He's got traits that carry consistently across writers more. But a character like Dazzler, I mean, the way she's written in her own book versus X-Men here versus like recent Uncanny X-Men after she got all like emo after Mystique knocked her out for a while and took her flesh away. Long story. Those could be three different characters very easily. But this Dazzler around the Australia era, love her. So the three of them go out to track down Zaitsev before either the Russian assassins or Gyrick can get him. The battle gets ugly. Sorry, the four of them, because Ozzy's cigar-eaten dog friend comes along and actually, in fact, ends up killing Zaitsev. Indeed he does. I love this little speech at uh, the end right here from Dazzler. I had a whole speech prepared. Wonderfully passionate stuff. Pure Civics 101. All about a government's responsibility to hold to the best ideals and aspirations of its citizenry and not be so eager to sacrifice them to expediency. But Wolvie noted dryly my words would be falling on the deafest of ears. 
Yeah, I think everybody forgets how smart Alison Blair is, because she comes off as often very petulant and self-centered. But not only is she trained in law, but she's just a smart cookie in general. A smart, shiny cookie. A smart, glittery cookie. A smart, glittery laser cookie. I want to eat a smart, glitter. I mean, not eat, like, that would be cannibalism. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. I mean, not if it were just a laser cookie. Yeah, well. Are you a laser? Are you a living laser? I might be. Anyway. Then we finally get back to the framing, which is Ozzy Chase reading this letter in a bar after the X-Men have been dead. People in the bar start making sort of anti-mutant comments, and he forces them to toast the X-Men at gunpoint. The end. It's actually really charming in a horrifying, why is this man allowed to bear arms kind of way. Yeah, so that happens. So yeah, that's a nice self-contained issue, and actually all the issues we're going to be covering today are. We won't really see an overarching X-Men multi-issue plot until the next issue we do about X-Men. Well, we see at least more overarching framing starting with 229, because 229 is where the X-Men get their Australian HQ. This issue is appropriately titled Down Under. It begins not in Australia, but in a bank in Singapore where people are going about their business when suddenly a bunch of dudes who you're going to get very familiar with very fast show up. Let's talk about these guys. Okay, so a portal opens in the middle of the bank, as so often happens. You know, if you've been to your local credit union, I'm sure this happens about every other time. And out comes a dude who's totally a tank. He's a tank from the waist down. He is half human, half tank. It's like a Ninja Turtles. I think the last thing he touched before he got affected by the mutagenic ooze was a tank. Yeah. Is there a word for people who are like half human, half tank? He's like the tank equivalent of a centaur. He's a tank tar. That I'm doesn't say, make sense. Makes perfect sense. And I love it. And no, I will, it doesn't. I will hear no argument. So the tank tar and a bunch of other cyborgs just appear from the portal and start shooting up the place. These guys are the Reavers, and only three of them get names in this issue, and in fact, only three of them survive this issue. The first one is Tank Guy. That's Bonebreaker. And you know that he's Bonebreaker. You can you get you know, his name backed up by the fact that he actually has a tattoo of a bone snapping with the word snap, just in case it's not real clear what's happening. I really like the idea of him just getting a dorky cartoon tattoo like that, and if anybody messes with him about it, he just murders them. Like, I think it's almost a trap, you know? No, I like the idea of him, like, trying to really seriously explain its significance a bunch. <laughs> He's like, no, no, it's like, because my name is Bonebreaker, but it's like a bone, and it's breaking, and you can hear it snap. The point is I shatter the bones of society, man. It's great. I like that you're basically turning him into Dermot from Venture Brothers. Oh, man, I'm going to hear his voice uh, that way from now on. That's beautiful. Oh, my God. Uh, there's also Skullbuster, who's a cyborg-looking dude with a red skull for a head, but not, like, that red skull. And then there's Pretty Boy, who's a boy who is pretty, I guess. But he's also got super fancy telescoping arms and fiber optic cables that come out from his eyes to rewire people's brains. That makes perfect scientific sense. I read about that in Science Magazine Monthly, which talks about science. So you know what the Reavers always make me think of? What's that? You know how, like, the action figures we grew up with were kind of flimsy, like they'd fall apart a lot? Yeah, totally. And you could, like, attach them back together in really wrong ways? <laughs> kind of like that. Like, the Reavers feel like they've got that sort of axe cop feel. The, these were made from the parts of children's toys toys may be assembled in ways that were never intended. I think you're totally right, yeah. I mean, so Spiral's got her body shop thing going on with Reese and Macon and everybody. Right, Spiral she... is basically a six-year-old with a bunch of broken action figures. And also six arms, as happens. You know, children. Children have a lot of arms, right? Well, yeah, you, you know, they have their baby arms, and then they lose those, and the arm fairy takes them and gives them a shiny nickel. Right, but one. sometimes they grow in, like, at the same time. Oh, yeah, and that just gets ugly. Then you have to have an arm dentist take care of it. In case you haven't guessed, we're not parents. Nor are we arm dentists. Yet. So, arm dentistry aside for this very moment, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. The Reavers are terrible, and they proceed to just, like, murder a lot of people. And when the president of the bank says that the safe is on a time lock, they just kill him right in front of his daughter. So let's talk about his daughter. His daughter is named 
Jessen Hoen, and they kidnap her to be their financial director. They are going to rewrite her mind and take away her moral compass. And in fact, they do so very, very successfully because she's going to come back way later as a villain named Tiger Tiger. Yeah, she's uh, going to end up running Madripoor in the Wolverine series for a little bit. Good for her. Uh, you know, it's uh, triumphing out of adversity. Right. So they then teleport back to the Australian Outback, and they do this by way of a gentleman by the name of Gateway. Okay, let's talk a little about Gateway. He came up in the cold open, but what else about him? So this is the part where I feel like my research falls super, super short. Gateway is one of the less developed side characters in X-Men. What we know about him is basically that he's an indigenous Australian. He has some kind of teleport powers. He's got a lot of tangential connections to the X-Men, and he's Bishop's grandfather. Which always seems so random to me. Yeah, it was a really odd retcon. It was thrown in, I think, in Claremont's Extreme X-Men. I hate to say it, but it kind of seems like one of those things to me where you'll have two black characters and you just sort of have to make them related, mm -hmm. like that there's some sort of story obligation to do so, which it never sits right with me. Yeah, it's an odd move for a number of reasons. And Gateway is like you never learn a name for him other than Gateway, which is the name that the Reavers give him. I don't think he actually has another name in the Marvel Universe. He's largely nonverbal, and he's a character whose role relative to the teams he's nominally on or collaborating with is, I, I feel like, kind of basically a teleport disc or a contrivance, but a sentient one whose subjectivity we never really get to see. And Gateway, like, I, I don't know. Gateway bothers me. Well, at the same time, I mean, because he's silent, whenever he does interact directly with another character, even wordlessly, it becomes that much more significant. So you kind of get a feel for his personality, which I enjoy. Oh, but he's such a trope in that regard. Like, he is an older, wise, and tremendously powerful black character who literally exists to get a group of not entirely, but predominantly white characters to the next place in the plot. I suppose when you like, put it that way, it that's does sound... a real specific trope, and it's frustrating because he's obviously a dude who has a lot going on, and I would like to see more of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, the point is he teleports the Reavers out of the bank back to their Australian Outback headquarters. We find out very quickly what the deal is, why he's working with these robot merciless jerks. Because well, they're, they're cyborgs. They're not, they're not robots. Half robots. They're We're just... cyborgs. Okay, cyborgs. So, point being, Gateway teleports these cyborg jerks back from the Singapore bank to their Australian Outback headquarters, and we very quickly find out why they have a hold over him, why he's working for these utterly irredeemable villains, which, by the way, utterly irredeemable villains, it's kind of nice to have those once in a while, you know? You just can hate them, and you don't feel guilty. So that's when Cyclops, Rogue, Storm, and Wolverine show up to fight the Reavers until they get to Lady Deathstrike and Wolverine rescues her with the power of love. Actually, throughout this entire issue, I was thinking about the second giant size special we did, the role-playing game that was set in the Australian Outback That's era. what I just summarized, by the way. None of this actually happens in this story. But man, if it did, that would get way weirder and the X-Men would fight kangaroos. It would be great. It's true. That module basically will forever color the Reavers for me. And I'm not sure whether to be grateful or vaguely resentful of that. <laughs> Seriously. Like, they're always going to speak for me in Logan's, like, deliberately bad animated show Australian accent. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what these guys sound like in my head now. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, Bonebreaker uh, conveniently summarizes for the reader why Gateway is working for the Reavers. He can look any which way he pleases, so long as he does what he's told. But mark me, Gateway, any funny stuff and the Reavers will trash your holy place beyond all hope or reconsecration. And then your people will never know peace. They'll wander the dreamlands, slave to the outside spirits, to the end of time and beyond. They're supervillains, but they're culturally literate supervillains. So as I mentioned in the cold open, I went and did a ton of research and tried to basically try to figure out what Gateway's actual cultural background would be most likely to be based on where this stuff takes place and the way he's dressed and all of that. And um, I got as far as I'm pretty sure nailing that down, but I did not get far enough into specific cosmology to see how well this lines up. 
so yeah, the Reavers are enjoying their victory, hanging out with their very dragon's horde-looking treasure room. Oh my god, yeah. So they drag the woman they've captured down, or Pretty Boy does, down to their treasure room. It's just Smog's horde. Like, it's just a room that's piled with, like, doubloons and shit. It's pretty great. It's and ridiculous. No one has a treasure room like that. Did these guys just, like, grow up reading Karl Barks and go, oh, I clearly need that? Yeah, they're just going to dive in and swim like Uncle Scrooge. It'll be yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'd do. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would hurt a lot. It turns out coins are really hard. I mean, gold's a soft metal, but not that soft. Well, if you've got enough of them, it would just be sort of like a ball pit, right? I would assume so, but the balls are made of metal, and I don't think that's a good plan. So with the Reavers. Well, I guess it works out then. Right, right. But anyway, the Reavers don't have long to appreciate their victory because suddenly there's a big sandstorm which heralds the arrival of the X-Men, and it is awesome. And basically the X-Men are here to beat up the Reavers and take their home, which would be super awful if the Reavers weren't so clearly supervillains. I mean, I kind of feel like this is a trend with the X-Men, because they took over Octopusheim way back in the day, right? Like, what is this, Dragon Age Inquisition? Like, uh, retaking all these enemy keeps and setting up bases there? The thing is, it's not retaking. Like, they're just taking. Okay, well, fine. They're just stealing, which I guess sounds much less heroic. But you're right, they're totally bad guys. Well, the Reavers pretty much stole the place to begin with, so the X-Men definitely have the moral high ground here regardless. The ensuing fight scene is kind of ridiculous, because the Reavers are just so silly. They're so Saturday morning cartoon. They kind of are. I mean, they're powerful and they're merciless, but these are the X-Men. And one of the things I like about this issue, this is the first time we've seen the X-Men, you know, in the present day, since they died in Dallas, since they became, according to Roma, legends. And they really act like it here. Yeah, we've seen a lot of individual ones of them, especially Psylocke and Dazzler, kind of struggling to learn the kind of choreography and the kind of collaboration it takes for the X-Men to function as a team. We haven't until now really seen that in action, really seen what a well-oiled machine they have become and how well-coordinated they are until this attack. For me, like this is a major tonal shift for this group of X-Men because this is a really thrown-together team. These are the people who happen to be in the right place at the right time, stumble into the wrong room, get chased into the wrong tunnel, and who all just happened to be there in Dallas. You know, who were the X-Men who were on hand at the time they're not Cyclops's carefully assembled revived X-Men. They're not the kids who've been training with Xavier since they were teenagers. They are the most ragtag group of X-Men that I think we'll see for a very long time. And so seeing them come together like this, this competently as a team is a really significant shift. It's kind of a big triumph. I was kind of doing some mini fist pumps as I was reading this issue. It's pretty great. The Reavers are very quickly defeated. The three of them with names manage to escape, and the rest of them are all rounded up. Which means that the X-Men now have to figure out what to do with them. And Havoc, who's still kind of getting the hang of when to talk in these conversations, it kind of feels like. It's like, yeah, I know, we could do what you said you're going to do with me. We could just kill them. Havoc, grown-ups talking, grown-ups talking. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but, you know, to be fair, that was his first meeting with this new team of X-Men, and that would be a little bit traumatic. I can't fully blame the dude. Also, to be fair, he's joking. Well, yes. They're trying to figure out what to do when, all of a sudden, Omniversal Guardian Roma appears in a flash of awesome. Deus Ex Machina. Uh, quite literally, in fact. Uh, and the machine in question in this case is the Siege Perilous. Let's talk about the Siege Perilous, Miles. So, when Roma shows up, she's carrying this sort of small hand mirror-looking thing, which quickly expands into a very large, bigger-than-a-door-sized mirror. This portal. Is, uh, portal, portal, yes. This is called the Siege Perilous. Now, the Siege Perilous is a name that, if you are an Arthurian mythology nerd, you may already know, that was the seat at the Round Table that was reserved for whichever knight was able to find the Holy Grail. And if the wrong knight sat in it, if somebody who was not that dude sat in it, they would immediately die. The Siege Perilous in the Marvel Universe is slightly different. It is a portal that basically strips away people's egos, their identities, and spits them out somewhere else. In Roma's words, 
Those who pass through its portal are judged by the highest of powers. The good and ill of their lives are weighed in the cosmic balance, and they are born again, given a second chance to redeem themselves. Well, kinda, because we're gonna see people go through this later and where they come out. Well, it's interesting. Anyway, they, they decide they're going to give their Reavers the opportunity to jump into the Siege Perilous to save their own lives. And the Reavers are all pretty down for it, except for the three named leaders who have already fled. And so Roma also points out that, hey, if any of you X-Men ever want to just kind of start over, if things ever get too rough and you just want a fresh blank slate, you can go through it too, which is basically like a Chekhov's gun kind of set setup. Chekhov's cosmic portal. Chekhov's cosmic portal. But yeah, I mean, from here on out, we know that the X-Men always are going to have this as an out. And the question of whether they're going to take it is going to become a big plot point going forward. Spoiler, they totally are. Well, some of them anyway. Some of them. So that basically is how things wrap up. Roma says that her obligation to the X-Men is now discharged. Um, Jess and Hohen, the woman who was messed with by Pretty Boy's eyeball tentacles. Who they decided not to let go through the Siege Perilous for some reason. Well, she begged not to. She didn't want to be erased. I mean, the Siege right. Perilous involves a full memory wipe. I mean, you know, with some schools of philosophy, that means you're essentially dying. Point. And so she goes off back to her room full of dead family members, which is, you know, harsh. Maybe yeah, that's why Roma's she, basically uh, like, yeah, we'll just drop her off where you found her or where they found her. It's cool. And the X-Men are left there with a very powerful artifact. Roma says that they are the first people in over 1,000 years to be trusted with it. So there we go. Basically, this issue sets up the Australian status quo. The X-Men live inside a ghost town full of fancy technology in the Australian outback with a portal that can rewrite people's identities through some sort of cosmic karmic balance of fate setup. So basically what you're saying is it's your standard, you know, evening sitcom. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, it's a multi-camera sitcom, canned laughter, that sort of thing. But it's a weird status quo, but I really love it. Like I said, we have a great set of X-Men. I love the way they bounce off of each other. We have a very strange base for their adventures. I mean, both thematically and, you know, literally geographically. And it's good, weird stuff from here. Speaking of that strange base, the next story that we're going to look at Uncanny X-Men 230 hinges on the base's history with the Reavers. And we realized uh, we accidentally kind of almost synced calendars with the X-Books over the last couple months. And what that basically means is that January is just going to be full of holiday special issues. Exactly. We already did our holiday special, and now the X-Men and X-Factor, and I think maybe even the New Mutants are going to do theirs. Do the New Mutants get a holiday special? I feel like they really just basically get endemic misery for the next 30 issues. They get dead friends. Does that count? I guess that is pretty holiday special. I guess. Obviously, we have different feelings about holiday specials. Perhaps. So anyway, this is really the first issue that shows the X-Men in their new base, which I kind of love. I mean, I feel like it should have a name. Like, the roulette-type place from before that they stole from Magneto was called Octopusheim. What do we call this place? I don't know. At least the imaginary town they're in is, I believe, called Kuderman's Creek. Well, Kuderman is a funny word, but maybe it's we'll come up with something better. It's a pretty funny word, yeah. Yes. Man, I could go in so many directions with that, but I won't. Instead, I'll and talk about X-Men really appreciate X-Men number 230. Your forbearance is noted, sir. <laughs> yes. So anyway, what we first see is something that we haven't seen much of in a very long time, which is Storm riding the wind, Storm using her weather powers and looking pretty damn happy about it. In her brand new costume. Okay, so the costume here is kind of weird for Storm. It's a skin-tight black bodysuit with a big lightning bolt across her torso, kind of like Ms. Marvel's outfit in that regard. But it always seemed weird to me. Like, Storm, I'm not going to say that she's an overly sexualized character, but she's always been very comfortable with her body, and she always has worn costumes that haven't really covered everything. Seeing her covered from toe to neck in black spandex or leather or whatever is weird. Yeah, it's super weird. Like, that's really not Storm's style, and it never has been, and it's an 
odd, odd costume for her. It's also a costume that's just terrible for the environment that she's in. Yeah, it's really hot in the Australian it's outback, It's super, guys. super hot. All of the other X-Men are running around in like tiny running shorts or, or Havoc's amazing outfit, which we'll get to later. Yeah. By amazing, I mean super terrible. But, you know... So terrible. Some of our commenters have been discussing that the fall of the mutants, one of the effects that the crossover had was powering the teams up very thoroughly and eliminating characters without powers by either giving them powers or in the case of Cypher, just killing them. And that's a valid point. I do think that Powerless Storm was really interesting, but seeing her just so ecstatically doing the weather thing is also really cathartic. So that's a really weird generalization for me to hear because, I mean, the X-Men literally just got their first, well, no, I guess not their first, but their first non-superpowered human member. Like, Uh, Madeline Pryor is now and is going to become an increasingly essential member of the team. Well, she sort of is, but she's also going to be the woman in the back room. She's going to be computer support. Yeah, she's mission control. She's basically going to be their oracle. She's going to be the person who's tapped into all of the information. She's going to be the one who understands how to run all of the Reaver tech, both of which are going to come back and bite the X-Men in the ass when she goes supervillain. But for now, she is becoming an increasingly critical and involved member of the group. But I think that it is a good point that she's not part of the away team, that the away team now is all people with combat-focused mutant powers. And in X-Factor, you know, the person with the weakest powers, arguably Angel, is now a living weapon. In New Mutants, the person without the combat powers, Cypher, is now dead. Man. But regardless, point being, Storm is doing her weather power thing, and the rest of the X-Men do a training exercise to play with the new technology, the surprisingly advanced technology in the Reaver base that they now control. Which is basically rogue versus everyone. They have fun. Everyone else wins. Now, as this is going on, Madeline Pryor is thinking about how happy she is to finally be helping the X-Men and how much she wants to use this role to use this newfound sense of purpose to find her son. To quote, The Marauders may have stolen my baby, but by heaven, no matter how long it takes or what it costs, I mean to get him back and make the swine who stole him pay. But unfortunately for Madeline, she is up against forces far larger than herself, including the finally returned bitchy narrator. A heartfelt promise. A pity Madeline Pryor doesn't remember that one should always be careful what one wishes for. But that's a story for another day. Specifically, that story, Inferno, is for another Inferno day. You do you, Madeline Pryor. Anyway, the X-Men are doing their training thing. As you mentioned, Jay, uh, Alex Summers, Havoc, is continuing his fine tradition of being horribly dressed by wearing this weird, like, explorer's safari outfit. That's with... clearly way too big for him. It is. Um, on the upside, he has very tall socks and a dumb baseball cap, so that's he has, good. He has a perfectly matching, like, Xavier School Ranger cap somehow. Oh. Sure, why not? Like, did they just swing by storage on the way to the Outback? I think without Lorna around, he's having a really hard time dressing himself. We can generalize this into a family trait. I know I said that Cyclops was the worst dressed X-Man, but Havoc definitely gives him a run for his money, especially in the hat department. Havoc is the king of terrible hats. He truly is. So as this is all going on, Longshot is off doing his own thing. He's wandering through these tunnels underneath the Reaver base, and he's starting to hear voices. Those voices are begging to be taken home. They are lonely, they are scared, they are displaced. And as it turns out, they originate in and are the voices of the Reaver's weirdo dragon horde. This is the inanimate objects that they've stolen, crying out to Longshot, who has psychometry, who can to some extent read psychic imprints off objects, to take them back where they belong. And I really love the two-page spread where this is revealed, because we see Longshot in this room just full of golden treasure and stuff, and there are these sort of humanoid spirits floating all around with ragged speech bubbles, each saying things like, Save us! Hear us! So lost are we! It's gloriously creepy. And so he picks up a bracelet trying to figure out what's going on, and it talks to him, 
and tells him the story of, you know, the, the people who owned it and someone giving it to somebody else. And he just freaks out and screams. And goes comatose for several days. When he comes out of it, he explains what's happened and they test out what's going on in a more controlled context. It turns out he was just overwhelmed by the psychic imprints and basically overextended his powers. And they find this necklace, which basically tells them with the aid of Longshot psychometry and then Psylocke's projections of what he's seeing, its history and where it belongs and how it was stolen and of the, all of the generations between whom it was passed down. And I really love the way this thing talks, as it were. Made was I with all the skill of a master artisan's hand. Given was I with all the love in a proud father's heart. Passed down was I from mother to daughter, from then till now. But woe, oh woe, that was not to be. It's all like dramatic and old-timey like, and I like the idea of every object in our house just being super self-serious and full of itself. Well, it kind of makes sense that it talks in an old-timey way because we see images of its history and it looks like it's been around since, you know, the late 18th, early 19th century. I would assume that the objects talk relative to when they were created. Oh man, now I want one from like uh, Out West Prospector Times that just talks like Old Man McGucket from Gravity Falls. I want 1980s video game systems that rap awkwardly. (laughs) I've never heard a statement that I agree with so much in my life. That's beautiful. Okay, so the X-Men try to figure out what to do, and they decide over Wolverine's grumpy protestations that what they're going to do is use Longshot Psychometry and Gateway's teleportation ability to- And Madeline's super hacker skills. To bring all these objects back to their original owners, or at least, you know, their original owners, whoever's alive that didn't get revered to death. And they do. They basically spend the night playing Santa. They manage to divide the objects up by continent and then narrow down locations and spend the night teleporting around. They also um, check in briefly on the new mutants who are very sadly failing to sing Christmas carols because their buddy Doug Ramsey just died. And Storm at least makes it a less horribly snowy night and that makes them less miserable. So there's that too. So Gateway is teleporting them around through all of this and they trust him because Storm sensed that he was not malicious because that's a thing she can apparently do. Sure, sure. And Psylocke was able to some extent establish telepathic rapport, but one of the X-Men who's actually been trying to communicate with Gateway and and actually like make friends with him as something other than like the party bus is Rogue. Yeah, there's a really sweet scene. She, She brings him a picnic earlier, but there's a really sweet scene at the end of this issue after they've realized that it is in fact Christmas that they've been delivering all these presents on in one night. Not that that sounds like anybody else. They figure this out specifically because Dazzler gets caught putting stuff under a tree by two kids and introduces herself as one of Santa's helpers. Which you can tell she is just loving. She loves Naughty and she always has. But yeah, at the end, Rogue goes up to see Gateway and she approaches him almost shyly. It's really sweet because Rogue, it's clear that she wants to connect, but she also respects people's boundaries. And so she just brings him a wooden flute and a slice of cake from their party and uh, starts to leave because she's worried she's intruding when he just smiles, pats the ground next to her and plays the flute as they watch the sunrise. And it's super sweet. This is a side of Rogue that we're going to see more and more of over the years, and it's one of the ones that rings truest to me, which is the character who really goes out of her way to find and try to forge a connection with people who are outsiders, who are less included, that she makes a point of doing that, because that really, really fits her history. It does, and I always come back to this run, which I I know I keep talking about it, but Mike Carey and then Christos Gage's run on X-Men Legacy, I thought was an excellent example of Rogue and that kind of mentor, teacher, bringing in the outsider position. Highly recommended. I like that this is the X-Men's first sort of official mission from Australia. Yeah, not counting clearing out the base so they can live in it. This is their first away mission, and it's just to deliver back people's stolen stuff to play Santa. It's so nice seeing the X-Men get a win like that. It's so nice seeing them get to do something that's just unambiguously positive. It's significant, I think, too, that it's not a fight. 
yeah, I mean, the only hard part is delivering thousands and thousands of items across multiple continents, which is implausible, but the X-Men are, to be fair, pretty awesome. Well, it and the upcoming issue are, I think, a pretty good metaphor for how the X-Men are planning to relate to the world around them, what they're planning for their role to be relative to everything else, which is as these sort of you know, legendary, unseen guardians and helpers. That's what they're trying to be. And that brings me to my favorite issue of this group that we're looking at. And one of the ones that has stuck with me hardest across the years, X-Men number 231. This is a really great issue. And one of the things that's great about it is that it's drawn by Rick Leonardi. We've talked about Leonardi, I think, a couple times. This issue drives home for me my belief that he is kind of one of the great and unjustly often forgotten X-Men artists. He is someone whose name tends to come up as a guy who did fill-ins or was between X very famous person and Y very famous person. Man, like he is, I think, maybe my definitive magic artist. You know, I might kind of agree. He's got this sketchy but expressive style that echoes Sienkiewicz a little bit, albeit not nearly that extreme. But it's very expressive. It's very angular in a way that I think works to get across the nuances of characters. He's this great synthesis of a lot of the stylishness and angularity of someone like Silvestri and the expressiveness of, say, June Brigman. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put that's, it. His line work is much, much cleaner in ways I think that, again, serve the story well. And he's someone who, man, I, I want to go back and get a better feel for his style because I like his stuff so much. And I totally overlooked him as an artist my first time through a lot of this material. And this issue also, I believe, features another favorite of yours. Oh, it does. It does. This issue features a cameo from my very, very favorite mythic figure and long-term career goal, the Baba Yaga. I'm terrified of when that eventually happens because I'm probably going to get eaten. Now you can totally live in the house on chicken legs with me. I I will get a mortar and pestle large enough for two. Oh, that's so romantic. Yeah. And we'll we'll murder children together. We will. No, (laughs) we're not sorry, NSA. No. (laughs) No, we can just be kind of cranky. I don't know. We can give children like skull flamethrowers. She does that sometimes. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, the thing is, the Baba Yaga isn't just like a chaotic murder force. She's got fairly strict rules. And if you adhere to them when you're in her cottage, she won't kill any. Usually, probably, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. In God, this issue, I love her so much. She is the folklore character like who really stuck with me from early childhood, who I grew up with. And I just, ah, oh, she's so cool. She's so cool. She's so gnarly and grumpy and murdery. All those early childhood child murdering stories. Look, some of us had really awesome parents, okay? Have, actually. <laughs> Fair enough. So anyway, the way this one opens is kind of weird, which is with Ilyana Rasputin in a really elaborate, uh... She's wearing an elaborate traditional Russian royalty clothes. Yeah. And she, uh, is smiling, looking beatific, and a woman who she calls grandmother puts an apple in her mouth and throws her into an oven, at which point we cut to Colossus, who apparently had this as a creepy, creepy dream. Yeah. Yeah. That's very specific. He's apparently got a great sense for Russian royalty fashion design in his dreams. And what he's doing to shake off this dream is trying to flatten rocks in the outback while in full metal form and wearing teeny tiny 70s orange athletic shorts. Yeah, and in fact, Rogue flies up to see so if he's okay. Yep. shorts. She offers to fly him to the Himalayas so he can try his hand against Mount Everest, and in the meantime is thinking about how ridiculously attractive he is in his teeny tiny shorts. Which leads to some great double entendres, because in addition to being metaphorically hot, Colossus, who is made of organic steel and has been breaking rocks in the blazing sun all day, is literally hot. In fact, he's so hot that he burns Rogue through her gloves when she puts a hand on his shoulder, and then when he's going back to his sketchbook, it actually catches fire from contact with him. Because Colossus has just achieved a secondary mutation of being a living allegory. Yeah. Um, And the sketchbook, when it burns, we see that the page it was turned to is a picture of his little sister, Ilyana, just to kind of like twist that knife in deeper. 
So Colossus wants to go home. He wants to check on Ileana. You know, the rest of the X-Men have connections to some extent, but none of them is effectively the sole guardian of a kid, which he pretty much was. Yeah. I mean, not that Ileana is your average kid these days. She is, of course, a demon sorceress, if you've somehow skipped all of our New Mutants episodes. That doesn't mean she doesn't need role models. Well, that's true. And In so, fact, it might mean that she needs role models more. And so once again, we see something that's become very familiar in this collection of issues, which is one of the X-Men saying, hey, I want to do this thing that would maybe violate us being seen as being dead. One of the leaders of the X-Men, Storm Wolverine, saying, no, don't do it. And then some of the other X-Men saying, oh, come on, this needs to happen. It's actually Dazzler who ends up standing up for Piotr the most vehemently and the most effectively. I know what's sensible and rational and necessary, but I like to think I also know what's right. I love how Dazzler unexpectedly becomes the emotional compass of the team at this point. Where she is now and where the X-Men are now, I think, puts her in a position where, for the first time in a very long time, her loyalties aren't split. Like, she's not here and, like, waiting to go back to her music career. She's here and sort of understands that here is where she is for now. I think you're right, yeah. And so the X-Men decide, well, okay, let's have this happen. And Gateway is, in fact, right there, ready to teleport Piotr to wherever he needs to go. Gateway just sort of knows how this is supposed to work. And he's, he's one of those characters whose powers are connected to a tool, by the way. He uses something called a bull roarer. I will put a link to the Wikipedia article on them, in the as mentioned, because they're really neat. Yeah, he has this TARDIS-like ability to send people where they need to go at that point. And so Colossus emerges, well, actually— Well, if he's just pushing them through without any kind of vehicle, wouldn't he be more like a void manipulator? technically true. Good point. But anyway, where he teleports Colossus is not in fact on Earth at all. It is in the demonic realm of Limbo. Where Ileana immediately welcomes him. She's expecting him. Right, because she has just been casting a necromantic spell to summon her dead brother, her, she thinks, is dead Well, brother. the shade of her dead brother. Right, and it's actually a really cool scene. She's in her dark child persona, so she's all demoned out. And I want to say I love how Rick Leonardi draws magic as the dark child, because she can so often be sexualized, like, too much in this form. The fact is she's not wearing very much. That's been established by many artists. But Leonardi manages to make that not the focus, to make the sexualization not the focus at all. And that's so nice, and honestly, it's such a relief during this this time period when the other person who's mostly drawing her is Brett Blevins, who goes very far in the other direction. Totally, yeah. And so uh, she's casting this spell in the middle of a pentagram of blood in this, like, war-torn hellscape. Well, in the middle of a pitched battle with the demon Sim, whom you might recall from the many other times he's popped up, he's an enormous scary purple demon who is currently making a bid for control of Limbo. He's building his own magic mountain. It's actually super creepy, because Ilyana has her mountain she casts spells on, Forge has his own. I guess you need a mountain to cast spells in the Marvel Universe. And the one he's building is made out of the bodies of demons, of the soldiers of the right, those smiley-faced soldiers in robot suits, just all piled on top of one another. And it's super creepy and not okay. And um, yeah, side note, most of them appear to be still alive and just part of a pile. So that's the thing. There's actually a picture book this totally reminds me of, but it is about caterpillars and it has a happy ending. So, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> yes, it may vary a great deal. And so as this is happening, Colossus sees Sim. Sim recognizes Colossus as the dude he killed in Ileana's past in the Magic miniseries, that alternate timeline. Colossus recognizes Sim as part of the reason that his little sister has had such a horrible life, and just dives full force into him and smashes him into oblivion, as near as we can tell. Well, smashes him into temporary oblivion, because here's the thing. Sim is now a techno-organic construct. He can regenerate from any trace of himself, any location in Limbo. And I love Colossus's reaction as he sees Ilyana as all this is happening. Can this be, little snowflake? Have you changed so much? I was a fool to come. I can do no good here. Such a creature is beyond my help, and yet, 
Who am I to call anyone creature? She is my sister. This is what will kill Colossus someday when he dies again in continuity. I am pretty convinced of that. His utter unwillingness and inability to give up on Ileana. Like, this is and has always been and probably always will be his Achilles heel. I mean, the Secret Wars Inferno series obviously is there. The Fear Itself storyline is basically all about that. That's how he ends up the Juggernaut. Like, basically, she turns him into that as an object lesson in, no, I'm really fucking not the innocent kid that you treat me as. Stop trusting me. And he still does. Now, the Eliana we see here is a much more sympathetic one, and it's so sad realizing that she is convinced he's dead, that he's just some temporary shade that she's expended all this dark and not okay power to summon. And he decides to let her believe that, to let her keep believing that, which is, like, for me, that's the thing that breaks me in this issue. That is the heartbreaking thing, that he just, he decides that he's not going to tell her the truth. He's just going to help her, but he's going to help her under the auspices of being his own ghost. Exactly. She reminds herself that he is just a tool that she has summoned and teleports the two of them to what appears to be a weird partially constructed version of the Xavier Mansion. Oh man, it's basically the Halloween Town equivalent of the Xavier Mansion and it's so great and I wish that the school looked like this all the time. Yeah, and she explains what happened. Apparently she was reading The Master and Margarita, which is a famous Russian novel. It is, it's very good. And some of the characters from it came and captured her and brought her into the X-Mansion's kitchen where there was a witch, the Baba Yaga, the famous Russian witch. The best Russian witch. Yes, who had bound up all of the new mutants and was about to eat them and eat her, and she managed to teleport away, but couldn't teleport any of them away because of the Baba Yaga sorcery. Right, because the Baba Yaga is super, super powerful. And so, having explained what's going on, she then teleports Colossus high above the Halloween Town X-Mansion, complete with its own front yard full of skulls on poles, and he smashes through the ceiling into the chamber where the Baba Yaga is fattening up all of the new mutants. And she's specifically decided to summon her brother's ghost as opposed to anything else, because the Baba Yaga is a fairy tale creature, like most such creatures, she is weak against cold iron. And as we in fact learned in the fall of the mutants, Colossus is good against that. Colossus is made of steel, apparently being an iron alloy is close enough. And so there's a fight. He manages to defeat the Baba Yaga and she just sort of pops, leaving only her shawl behind. It's kind of like a Jedi dying, but more evil witchy. And what we find out is that she and the Bulgakov references and all of her ogres were basically things from limbo that had gotten through because Ileana's control is starting to slip. And had just taken on forms out of Liana's head. Yeah, she doesn't know that, but Sim helpfully narrates after he reconstitutes himself and very quickly murders one of the smiley-faced soldiers who himself was trying to take over. He's a helpful guy. And so it's time for Ilyana and Piotr, the seeming ghost of Piotr, to say goodbye. And I just want to go right through this whole dialogue because it is great. What is wrong? Why do you turn away? I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I don't want you to see me. Not like this. Why are you ashamed? You have risked everything. Hazarded your soul to save your friends. That is something to be proud of. That wasn't altruism. It wasn't anything so nice or noble. I was angry. Nobody gets the better of magic, especially not some warty old yuck face out of Granny's fairy tales. Why do you speak so? Don't be dense, because it's true. Look at me. I'm a demon sorceress. I'm evil. I'm only good because I want to be. <laughs> What's so darn funny? You are. Don't you listen to what you say? Don't you understand? I am only good because I want to be? Isn't that the point? Making a deliberate, conscious choice. What you are does not matter, because you are trying to become something better. I keep failing. You keep trying. And the harder you try, the more you'll truly succeed. You really believe that? How can I not? You are my sister. Whatever you are, I still love you. But you're dead! Am I? As long as a person exists, in the hearts and memories of those he loves and who love him, he can never truly die. 
Reality sometimes is not so important as the dream, the ideal that gives it meaning. What is not without, on the facade, can often be found within. Remember that, beloved little snowflake. Remember me. And with that, he teleports away, and she summons her soul sword and armor as if she's going to summon his ghost again, but decides not to do it, because this spell, this would have been the darkest magic could ever worked, and she expected it to basically permanently suck away what was left of her humanity, and somehow it didn't. What we know is that it's because she never completed the spell gateway, just dropped in the actual Colossus. But as far as she knows, she dodged a massive, massive karmic bullet, and she's not going to tempt fate here. Like you said, Jay, it's just really sad, the fact that she doesn't know that this is the real Colossus, the fact that she doesn't know her brother is in fact still alive, but it's also heartwarming to see her rededicate herself to herself because of Colossus's words, even if she doesn't believe them to be real. And even if she's totally doomed anyway. Also, this is a great chance to have Claremont write Eliana Rasputin again. I will forever love his magic. Yeah. And so, yeah, those are the issues that we have for today. Four basically standalone issues at the beginning of the X-Men Australian Outback era. Setting, I think, very, very well the tone for the rest of that time. Exactly. In the meantime, you've got questions. Adventure Vernon asks on Tumblr. Hi, Jay and Miles. Wondering if you could help on a project I'm working on. I teach science in an inner city school in New York, and most of my students approach science through superhero comics. So I'm building an inspirational wall of science moments from Marvel Comics featuring Doctors Doom, Nemesis, and Octopus reading Learn Science, Rule the World. I was wondering if you had any favorite science moments from X-Men, also any explicitly Afro-Caribbean scientists in Marvel. Thanks. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying that while there are a number of science moments in X-Men and in Marvel, the vast majority of them are extremely scientifically implausible. So, giant grain of salt, which is made of the element saltium, which is right next to adamantium. I mean, he's setting this up at least in part as a gateway to world domination. I feel like for also, especially for a science teacher, I feel like extreme ridiculous fake science can be as useful a talking point and teaching tool as more plausible stuff. Okay, yes. So with the understanding that we're talking about science as opposed to science, a few of my favorites. So I really liked when the Shi'ar rebuilt Professor Xavier's body after his original body was torn apart by the brood embryo inside. Just because, you know, why not? Uh, Literally any description of Cyclops' visor ever. Also, Mr. Sinister installing his consciousness into the children of his co-scientists that he was working with so that if he ever died, he would manifest as one of them. Pretty awesome. The entire X-Club miniseries, basically, was just beautiful. Yeah, the X-Club miniseries is basically super science and punching. Yeah, there's also the arc where Beast goes around finding and recruiting all of these amazing super scientists to form X-Club, which I don't recall the specific issue numbers or creative team off the top of my head, but I will look that up and get back to you. And my favorite all-time X-Men science moment is actually from Wolverine and the X-Men, Volume 1, Number 5, where Beast, as a class science project, shrinks all of his students down, Fantastic Voyage style, and they go through Toad's bloodstream to see mutant DNA, mainly because it features the line as Beast talks to the son of Gladiator, Small alien child whose name I do not know, stop punching the DNA! I want to point out that Miles just has that memorized. He didn't read it off anything. I'm sure I got at least one word slightly wrong. I think, honestly, there's a lot of good Beast stuff in general. So, yeah, uh, I would say, listeners, though, if you have any opinions of your favorite X-Science moments, uh, let us know in the comments on this episode or on the As Mentioned post. Or if you can think of more Afro-Caribbean scientists in Marvel. We thought of one off the top of our heads. That's Cecilia Reyes, who is a doctor. She's not really a research scientist, but she is a total badass. She totally is. But yeah, listeners, if you've got any additional suggestions for Adventure Vernon on either of those fronts, please drop them in the comments to this episode. So, Psalms of the Daywan asks on Tumblr, My comic book collection is starting to get too big to manage. I sympathize. 
and I'm gathering a bulk of titles I know I'm not going to read again. I would love to donate most of it, but I'm not sure who would be best suited for this kind of donation. Do you know of any comic book-based charities or causes or other appropriate organizations I could donate them to? Oh, man. So, funny story. Long ago, I asked this question and actually started to start a nonprofit that kind of fizzled because everyone involved with it either got really time-intensive jobs or had babies like three months after we started talking about it. But in the process of this, I did do a lot of research on charities and nonprofit organizations that accept donations of comic books. And so here's where I would tell you to start. Look for youth programs, especially programs for homeless or underserved youth. Sometimes they'll have content restrictions. So if you know what's in your collection and you're pretty familiar with it, that's going to help a lot. But a lot of them love that stuff. If you are cool with the idea of your comics maybe being cannibalized or cut up, after-school arts programs, boys and girls clubs, any of those groups are generally going to be really, really excited about those donations. And if they can't necessarily use them, they will likely be able to point you in the direction of folks who can. I don't know where you are geographically. If by some chance you're in the Pacific Northwest, I can tell you a lot more specific stuff. Feel free to drop us a line at explainthexmen at gmail.com if that happens to be the case, and I can hook you up with some more specific organizations that I specifically know look for and like these things. But otherwise, yeah, I would just start calling around to youth programs. So Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is completely supported by our amazing Patreon donors. And one of the rewards at certain levels of donation is thanks on the air in a variety of fictional voices. And I'd like to point out, because there have been a lot of angry narrator requests lately, that Miles' supervillain voices are actually way better. You just don't remember them because you haven't heard them recently? I love all of my children equally. But anyway, for this time, the angry Claremontian narrator. You will have your revenge, Benjamin Smith, but at what cost? Is the life of Jason Rosenberg worth your very humanity, body, and soul? Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported and is ad-free. That's made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be back with New Mutants. For the saddest story ever told. (laughs) 